Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? It is a pleasure to be here. Yes. As you'll note, I am once again hunkered down in my virtual library where I plan to stay until after election day for various reasons. So that's where, that's where I'm recording today. Are you, you taking your Regeneron while you're down there <laughs> so that you will feel better than you have in the last 20 years? I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pass. I'm going to demure on that question and not answer. Uh, that's, that's a matter between me and my doctor, but that is, that is a HIPAA. HIPAA, a HIPAA protected. protected. Yeah. We're not about uh, violating any privacy laws here. Uh, but in, in any event, um, welcome to Embargoed as always. Uh, Thanks for uh, listening in this uh, this week. Uh, thanks as always to those of you who reached out after our massive uh, deep dive into the TikTok and WeChat um, mess uh, the, on the last episode. We're gonna briefly revisit that this time, but I, but we promise it will be it will be brief and uh, and then we will move along. Yeah, pretty enlightening in in our treatment of TikTok and WeChat this week. Uh, so before we get started, as always, uh, we're not here giving legal advice. Uh, we are not discussing any confidential information, including uh, confidential health information. Uh, and if you enjoy the podcast, you can find us anywhere you get your content, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube, if you want to uh, see what my virtual library looks like and gauge how and try to guess how long it's been since Tim got a haircut, you can find us on YouTube. Uh, and uh, if you enjoy, enjoy the pod, please give us a rating, a five-star rating. Uh, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your colleagues, uh, pass along the word uh, about uh embargoed, especially as things are heating up here in the run-up to election day, as I've already alluded to. Uh, so I think we want to um, we want to get right to it. Any thoughts before I kind of give the rundown and we and we get started? No, I mean, lots of stuff happening and, and a lot of it is not in China this time. Yeah, only a little bit of China this this pro this episode. And we had some sort of late breaking news relating to Iran that we were actually planning to talk about anyway. I scouts honor on that one. Uh, we really did have that on the on the list of topics for today. But I, uh, I can confirm that Brian sent an outline actually about four <laughs> days ago. With that topic on it, as which one I, of the topics. yeah, which I never, we're never that organized, or uh, we wait, and we usually wait until the last second to stay timely. But uh, in any event, uh, so here's what we're going to cover today: a quick check-in, number one, with TikTok and WeChat, because there have been a few things that have happened since the last episode. Uh, actually, between when we recorded the last episode and when the last episode was posted, the big event happened. Uh, and so we'll talk about that briefly and check in there. Uh, then we're going to move on to uh, the lawsuit that was just filed uh, a few days ago, challenging the executive order and the regulations uh, imposing sanctions on the International Criminal Court. Uh, then we're going to move to the advisory that was just issued last week uh, by OFAC and FinCEN relating to ransomware, and in particular, uh, sanctions and other regulatory risks uh, in connection with payment of ransomware um, ransoms. Uh, it's sort of an interesting topic that's been uh, sort of kicking around in one fashion or another for a long time, but I think it's this sort of uh, the pandemic has brought this to a head. And so we got an advisory on that that we're going to talk about. And then the last uh, item for the main part of the show is a recent OFAC enforcement action uh, focused on Cuba 
and in particular, um, travel and insurance and some of the sort of favorite uh, topics with respect to Cuba. Uh, so we're going to talk about that briefly. And then in the lightning round, we're going to hit on, I think our, our lightning topics are actually <laughs> pretty, pretty uh, beefy. Uh, so they're not going to be big distinctions between those and our regular topics. We're going to hit the Iran, the expansion of the Iran sanctions to basically every other financial institution in Iran that was not already sanctioned. Uh, that just happened literally two hours ago. Uh, we're recording late in the afternoon on Thursday, October 8th. And um, this just happened earlier this afternoon. And then we're going to wrap up with a um, a, a ruling that came down a few weeks ago. Uh, we missed out on it when we did the lightning round episode relating to the lawsuit that had been filed by Federal Express, challenging essentially the entire structure of the export administration regulations. Uh, so we are going to, it, it's, 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 uh, it got a lot of attention when it was first filed last year in the early summer of 2019. Um, and it's now uh, come to a close, it seems, with a bit of a whimper. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, and that'll be the show for today. So um, with that, any, any thoughts before we get going, Tim? No, a lot on the plate, but I think we're going to get through it quickly. I'm optimistic. I, I think so. Uh, so let's start with item number one. As I said, uh, TikTok and WeChat. We can't uh, we can't quit TikTok and WeChat like much of the uh, U.S. and global public. So um, when we last left you, we were uh, a few days away from the WeChat ban had been enjoined uh, by federal court in Northern District of California. That remains the case. Uh, and uh, in D.C., there was a litigation pending relating to the TikTok ban. Uh, and we, we knew that there was going to be some action in all likelihood on a preliminary injunction that had been filed to uh, prevent the September 27th uh, aspect of the ban, which was going to be targeting uh, app stores and distribution of the TikTok app uh, through uh, those stores on September 27th. And that is, in fact, exactly what we got uh, on the 27th. Uh, federal district court judge in DC um, granted the preliminary injunction uh, only with respect to that one aspect of the ban, which was set to go into effect on September 27th relating to app stores. Everything else was punted and sort of put off for down the road. And those are the uh, aspects of the ban that are going to go into effect in November that were sort of time to coincide with what is supposed to be the conclusion of the, the CFIUS review process uh, relating to the TikTok divestiture uh, to Oracle and Walmart and other U.S. investors. So um, that's basically what's happened. There has not been, since, since the injunction was announced, that's basically um, the end of the sort of big headlines. So there's a, there's a a scheduling order in place now in that case where the parties are going to brief up the rest of the ban the the november pieces of the ban that are supposed to go into effect and that briefing is going to happen throughout october and if the case is still live because there's no divestiture we will likely get a ruling on that right before the november uh deadline hits uh on the wechat side of things they're they are arguing in the ninth circuit about um whether there should be a stay of the injunction pending appeal and that's really where things stand there. So at the moment, and if you're keeping score at home, there are the government is zero for two 
in, in, in their bands uh, on the timeline that they had originally intended to impose them. So there are no bands in place right now. Uh, put it uh, on top of that, um, very quiet in terms of what's going on with the CFIUS review and perhaps more importantly, the review going on by the government in Beijing of whether the Chinese government is gonna sign off on this. So we don't really have much more on that um, uh, from where we were you know, two weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if the silence is, is ominous or what's going to happen, but it doesn't look like this is going to get resolved uh, anytime soon. It looks like this is probably going to drag out all through October, maybe past the election, all the way into November, uh, if I were guessing at this point. I would let me throw this. So that's kind of where things stand. That's a snapshot of where everything is. So that's a lot simpler than where we were trying to explain what was going on the last time. Um, let me throw this to you, Tim. So the, the PI that was granted in the WeChat case, First Amendment grounds were the, were the grounds there, as we talked about last time. Yeah. In DC, on the TikTok ban, it basically fell, um, it, uh, the plaintiffs prevailed on um, the Berman Amendments and on the fact that this was, they, had, they demonstrated a likelihood of success on the fact that this restriction impermissibly regulates informational materials and personal communications, which are carved out of AIPA. And um, that is really uh, the lone ground that they prevailed on um, in front of the district court judge in DC. So what are your, let me throw it to you there. What are your thoughts on that? This is obviously, that's a pretty consequential decision uh, in terms of impact, not just in this case, quite frankly, but in many other cases and many other um, exercises of sanctions authority, in particular via purely via executive order. In uh, the the ICC matter, we're going to talk about in a few minutes is kind of may follow the same pattern or uh, same arguments types of arguments being raised. So, what do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so I'll start with I'll start with the um, the Berman Amendment ruling related to, to TikTok. Um, so on that one, I do think it could be consequential in terms of the fact that, you know, that sort of ruling could apply to every sanctions program. But OFAC is generally pretty careful in trying to carve out um, exceptions to sanctions programs for communications to devices, com for communications um, practices, uh, there, there's almost always an exception in the regulations for that. Most executive orders either expressly carve out an exception for personal communication or have a provision that says that, it, you know, this, this executive order is, does not restrict things that the president isn't allowed to restrict, which is kind of a nod to the Berman Amendment because the language of the Berman Amendment is basically the, the president's power under IEPA doesn't include the ability to, to um, to prohibit communication. So, so usually OFAC is much more careful than the Commerce Department was here um, and, and really than the, the administration was here because the whole point, I think, of both of these executive orders was to prohibit communication devices. And so it did come into much more direct clash with the Berman Amendment than a lot of these sanctions programs usually do. The other thing I will say about TikTok very quickly is that had the injunction not issued, we would have been deprived of the opportunity to see the Nathan Apodaca TikTok video. He, he's the Idaho Falls guy who was skateboarding to work um, and drinking this gigantic jug of, um, of, of, 
uh, Ocean Spray cranberry juice. Um, <laughs> hat tip to my wife to, for for showing me this this video. It's apparently become a huge sensation. He's also apparently singing along to um, Fleetwood Mac's Dreams, and Nick Fleetwood then made his own TikTok video that that went viral. None of this would have happened but for the injunction. And so that that really is the the line where where. Our, our area of expertise crosses with the real world and, and, and important aspects of American culture. Um, well, well put, well put. And bringing it all, bringing it all into some perspective. Uh, yeah, I, just on your first comment, I agree completely. And we talked about, we've talked about this a few times now since the executive orders were put out. Uh, it, it always struck us that this was sort of hastily put together, hastily conceived and rolled out. And there was definitely the prospect that this tension was going to uh, was going to sort of blow up in the government's face in terms of not construing or tailoring the restrictions in a manner that would survive challenge for these carve outs. And uh, that at the moment seems to be where things stand. So it'll be it will really be fascinating to see what happens if, you know, the deal falls apart. Let's 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 play. Let's let's fast forward to a reality where the deal doesn't get finalized or approved by either the U.S. or China, and we end up in a situation in mid to late November where we are still with the same TikTok's ownership is the same. ByteDance still has its same ownership. Uh, data remains where it, where it is now, not in the hands of a trusted U.S. company. Uh, what is going to happen, especially if more aspects of the restrictions end up getting enjoined, if, uh, you know, if, um, if this does get litigated in, in come early November, the judge in DC rules that uh, other aspects of this also uh, fail to pass muster. So will, will the government do a, you know, pivot, do a 180 and go back and try to rework the EO, or are they just going to fight this to the death until, uh, you know, maybe they push this up to the a more fr- a friendlier circuit court or the, or the Supreme Court, certainly to try to, um, to try to win the day. Of course, that's just, that's going to take a long time. So I don't know that they would have the patience for that, but that that's what we could be looking at here. Yeah, I mean, so so I did want to say a couple things about WeChat if we're moving over to that because I agree that you know that 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 it's one of the things that is interesting about WeChat or the WeChat litigation is that the government has withdrawn. I mean, it's withdrawn both of these um, both both of prohibitions, these orders, both, yeah. both of these prohibitions, which I find a little bit odd because. Um, you know, normally, uh, you know, if there's a law that's being challenged, it stays on the books during the challenge. And then if the challenge fails, the law just goes into effect like it was supposed to. And if the challenge succeeds, then the, then, um, you know, the law is still on the books, but it's enjoined. Here, they pulled it off the books, which means that even if the, the injunctions were to be lifted, they'd still actually have to go to the trouble of putting the, the provisions back in place, which isn't that hard, but it's just, I, I'm having a hard time understanding why they went to the trouble of pulling them. One hint, I, I was kind of piecing through the, the um, there's continued district court proceedings in the WeChat litigation, although it's still up on, the, up on appeal in the Ninth Circuit. And what appears to be happening is that the government appears to be trying to backfill the record to, 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 to justify the WeChat um, prohibition because one of the grounds that the district court overturned it on is part of the First Amendment analysis is that it wasn't 
that the government hadn't really stated much of a compelling interest. And so they're trying to show a compelling interest. In the course of that, at least you know, from reading the, the plaintiff side papers, it appears that um, on the question of whether or not they could have used a less restrictive means, WeChat apparently offered up all sorts of mitigation and at least some branches of the government, these are the government, the documents the government put in to backfill, you know, the, the, the justification for it. Apparently, some of the government actors thought that those justifications were sufficient and that they could have just gone with the, the mitigation that WeChat had offered for any of the, the privacy concerns that were raised in the, the order. And so it does seem to me that like this was done quite hastily without a ton of justification. And even now where they're trying to backfill the record with justification, the justification, again, I haven't gone through it enough to know for sure, but it doesn't look like it's even all that compelling now. And so I, I suspect that um, if they don't win, and they may not even try to appeal, at least from the, the documents that I saw, they appealed, but then they said they didn't have the permission of the Solicitor General. And generally when the United States um, appeals, or at least to pursue an appeal, it needs the permission of the Solicitor General. I don't know if that's happened yet, but but it, it seems possible to me that this just isn't gonna be pursued very vigorously because they just didn't do a very good job of justifying it. Um, and then after the election, who knows what's gonna happen. Yeah, one one other wild card here that I'll bring up is the idea that uh, you know the suit, the WeChat suit that we keep talking about is WeChat users are the plaintiffs group there. We still don't have any action from Tencent, the right. parent company, to, to 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 dive into this the way ByteDance has dove in on the other side. So that's you know still a big question mark and is still always a possibility that they could get involved more directly in litigation or in some other manner that we haven't seen yet so uh yeah i i agree i think just keep an eye for keep an eye out for that because very difficult to know how it's going to play out but again as things stand as tim said the the federal register notices that actually uh secretary ross put in uh you know a few weeks ago in september to announce the scope of the prohibited transactions those have been withdrawn uh and if you look for them now you you can't find them anymore they they you can read the letter that withdraws the prohibitions but the the uh prohibitions themselves are, are literally off the books and not in the federal register anymore so uh yeah very difficult to know kind of where this is all heading. I would just say as a general matter, I can't imagine that the government is gonna give up this one easily. Uh, obviously the election could have a big impact on on how vigorously this gets pursued, whether it sort of fades away quietly or this ends up being uh, a major issue uh, that's gonna be fought uh, you know, for months, if not years going forward, but we, we shall see. Uh, so with that, let's, uh, let's leave China and let's go over to the International Criminal Court, and uh, I'll, I'm going to throw it to Tim to talk about the lawsuit that was just filed in New York challenging the EO and the rigs. Thank you, Brian. So this has been a continuing saga on the podcast. So, so back last summer, the president uh, issued an executive order um, that, that uh, blocked um, or at least allowed the OFAC to block any individuals on the International Criminal Court that the that OFAC determined were interfering with U.S. foreign policy interests. Um, we talked at the time about kind of how shocking and, and odd a use of IEPA that was, um, and we predicted, uh, as it turned out incorrectly, that it would probably just go onto the shelves and never be used. But 
but we talked in a later podcast about how the fact that the president um, and OFAC then put a couple of uh, investigators with the International Criminal Court onto the SDN list. And so this, this program is up and running and real. And now um, on October 1st, uh, a public interest law center in New York and, and what the complaint describes as four distinguished law professors brought a lawsuit to uh, challenge the challenge the entire executive order and the entire program. But the, the gist of the challenge is that these professors um, provide uh, services and, and have interactions with the International Criminal Court. Um, they write about and think about the International Criminal Court. They've apparently provided training to members of the International Criminal Court and to investigators for the International Criminal Court. And they, although they challenge the entirety of the executive order, what they're really focused on is that in the executive order, like most uh, executive orders that deal with sanctions, the OFAC is given the power to uh, block certain people if they engage in certain types of conduct. Here it was the, the International Criminal Court investigations that related to the United States. But but um, once someone is blocked, it then becomes sanctionable to provide material support or financial support for someone who has been uh, placed onto the SDN list. And so these professors, the gist of their lawsuit is that they're very concerned about these material and financial support provisions um, based on the interactions that they've had with the International Criminal Court. And in fact, I think the interactions that they've had with, with some of the people who've already been listed. And so what this, this suit argues is that, that, that the, the, essentially the vagueness of those provisions um, violates the First Amendment and violates their, their, their right to, to be able to provide these services and, and shills the lawful interactions that they might have with the International Criminal Court. You you want to you sound like you want to jump in? No no no. I, yeah no. Go ahead. Keep keep going. Sorry. So so no. All I was gonna uh, I, all I was gonna say is just that it, the, on the surface I, I actually think that this complaint presents a very serious issue and and we've already talked about um, kind of our views on the 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 kind of outlier nature of this program generally. I mean, most most uses of IEPA involve national security concerns where you've got some entity that is engaging in some sort of conduct or some country or some government that's engaging in some sort of conduct that you can at least make the case violates international norms. It's very hard to make that case with the International Criminal Court investigating conduct within the territory of countries who've signed on to the International Criminal Court. So it starts out as kind of a, an odd use of IEPA. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, there's a real there's there's always a real problem with the material support provisions just generally in terms of the vagueness because they've been interpreted so broadly that they can't apply to conduct that is protected by the first amendment and, and really couldn't meaningfully be be regulated or criminalized but um the lawsuit and we've talked about this a little bit already um has paints this picture of this program um by talking about the fact that you know the regulations themselves that have been adopted uh, to, to pursuant to the executive order don't even provide any more detail than the executive order, and they don't define terms like material support. And then we or ask for, for or foreign foreign persons is right, another or one. Or foreign that they, persons that they, that they don't. Right. Yeah. 
and so and they don't and and we asked for clear we asked for guidance on this last month and we told them that it was a, a, that we needed it quickly and OFAC hasn't provided it for us and so so some of the some of the um, kind of factual statements in the complaint about the program and about OFAC even though you know I, I and I think we both have our concerns about this program don't really seem to be all that different from what OFAC OFAC does anywhere, and I'm particularly struck by the fact that they're very upset that OFAC hasn't replied to their request for guidance, and it's been pending for weeks now, and they told them they needed an answer in 20 days, and they can't believe that OFAC hasn't responded to that, and it's, it seems like you've got, there's some there there, I think, but it's buried uh, uh, amidst a lot of stuff that is really very unexceptional uh, to people who follow this um, and made to seem kind of almost breathless. Yeah, I think um, for anybody who actually interacts with OFAC on a regular basis, I, I think if you really dug around, there's probably some guidance requests that date back to the Clinton administration that are probably still sitting on someone's desk that haven't been <laughs> responded to. So all due respect to our friends at OFAC, uh, you know, that's just the, that's just the reality. So, uh, it, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. What this strikes me as is so the extreme distaste for this program among many people in the U.S. and, and outside of the U.S. from a, just a sheer policy and perhaps precedential standpoint is one thing, but it seems to really be coloring the lawsuit in a way that I don't know is really warranted because I think to Tim's point, all the things that are being complained about here, as opposed to what we're talking about with TikTok and WeChat, which I think truly are, you know, the executive orders there are truly something different and, and something we haven't really seen before, Th this is pretty run in the mill, just in terms of the executive order, the way it's structured, the terms it uses, and the the regulations that were issued uh, thereafter, the terms that they complain about not having fair notice of, you know, what does it mean, you know, unclear what it means to material assist, unclear what it means, what a foreign person, who a foreign person is, unclear, um, you know, those types of phrases, those are, I mean, those are part and parcel, obviously, of every program that OFAC runs. And, uh, and even if just looking at the specific EO and the regs here, you know, um, I, I think there's as much guidance to be gleaned here as there is in any other program. Uh, you know, the, the sort of the fair notice concept, as as loyal listeners of this podcast will know, on one of our very earliest episodes, I think it was episode two, when we talked about the ExxonMobil decision, that introduced the idea of fair notice with respect to the conduct that was issue, at issue in that case in, in the context of the Russia-Ukraine sanctions in a very different sort of very concrete sort of way. And I think that we speculated at the time that we may see more lawsuits that sort of piggyback on that approach and try to attack certain uh, ambiguous OFAC guidance in certain areas with, with that approach in mind. This kind of, this is sort of a half-hearted attempt to sort of do that, uh, but it's also based on it's all perspective. This is not, these are not people who've been penalized. These are people who say they want to engage in certain conduct or they have tr historically engaged in certain conduct with the two sanctioned persons who are part of the ICC and on behalf of the ICC and in relation to the ICC. So there's no, they have not suffered any actual harm yet. They, they, it's all perspective and speculative to some degree. So uh, I think this is very different than that. And I think, you know, they, they also make some, com there, there's also some discussion about 
well, what is the scope of a prohibited service that you can provide to a sanctioned person? Well, the scope of prohibited services, uh, whether or not it's clearly stated in uh, the regulations or the EO, every enforcement action that OFAC releases virtually has something to do with providing prohibited <laughs> services to sanctioned parties or sanctioned countries. And so there's many, there's do literally dozens of examples out there in the enforcement uh, arena that you can sort of glean from there. So the idea that that's a total sort of blank slate, I think is not entirely true. And, um, you know, this, and there's also some allegations about, well, these are um, speech-based services. And so that's a first amendment um, problem. Well, virtually any service that's being provided where there's any kind of advice being given is a speech-based service, I would argue. And so, again, I don't know that advising or consulting on ICC proceedings is really all that, if you can really distinguish it in any meaningful way from anything else that would be provided from, you know, again, for example, when, um, you know, in April, 2018, when uh, the, the SDN, uh, the oligarchs from Russia were added to the SDN list and Rusal and other companies were all of a sudden, you know, people woke up one day and they were on the SDN list. I don't know that there were, I didn't see any lawsuits at the time alleging that there were, you know, speech-based services that they could no longer provide to Rousseau and other companies. The reality is based on whatever the, the regs say and the, the blocking, uh, you know, uh, how it um, impacts you as a U.S. person potentially, or even as a non-U.S. person, you have to make judgments about what you can and cannot do. You can go to OFAC for guidance or a license. They went for guidance. They don't have an answer yet. They're not going to get an answer anytime soon. Uh, presumably, but that's how it would typically play out in the normal course. Now, I understand they have some things they want to do later this year, but plenty of people who've sought guidance from OFAC or have put licenses in don't get answers in the time in, in the time they want. So I don't, again, I don't know that this is uh, all that different than sort of a, a run-in-the-mill case. Yeah, I mean, so so I mean, training somebody how to use a shoulder-fired missile launcher is a speech-based service right, right. <laughs> um and and i i don't think that that would be one that i would want to be arguing in front of a court shouldn't be able to be regulated by by On first amendment grounds yeah it wouldn't be ofac it'd, it'd be ddtc but still right. i i wouldn't want to make a first amendment argument based on yeah. that i i i you know i the I, these these lawyers obviously know a lot more about the first amendment and about their their case than i do but i I would have framed this in a very different way. And, and, and instead of trying to take on this notion that these terms are so vague that nobody can figure out what they are because they're the same terms that they use in all the programs. And like you point out, Brian, th there is a common law of sanctions where if you read the enforcement actions, you can kind of figure out what OFAC is getting it by these terms. Not to say that a lot of them aren't vague anyway. I mean, I, I, I thought Exxon you know, made a very valuable point to, to the, or, you know, it made a very co valuable contribution to that discussion by pointing out that there's a lot of strategic ambiguity going on and it's not fair to punish people for that. But I, I would have thought about framing this case from the perspective of, look, when you're talking about you know, whether or not people can, can interact with terrorist groups, those terms might be fine or whether they can interact with kind of pariah countries. But when you're talking about whether or not professors can interact with the international um, the, the international court of justice and the international the ICC 
and, and, and help train investigators, you've got to be more precise. And so I think that this is, this is a case that, that instead of kind of focusing on these terms just generally, really, you know, to me anyway, what's powerful about this case is the fact that this program is crazy. And you really do think that the, 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 it, that I would want to tailor arguments to how crazy the program is and how well these terms might be fine in every other context since you're not trying to take down every sanctions program, you just want to take down this one. Um, when they apl are applied to this context, and and I you know I would have made a lot more of what a stretch I, I think this is in terms of IEPA. I mean, at some point there's limits to what the president can sanction under IEPA, and I would think that an internationally recognized court exercising power over its own jurisdiction would be somewhere with, where I would want to take that. Like I, I I just think that they they left a lot on the table by ignoring how crazy this program was and how you know, crazy it might be to apply to these facts and made it seem like these terms are just not fair in terms of sanctions generally. And, um, you know, they and, and and they point out things about OFAC that, you know, maybe courts don't know either, but that it's just, just standard practice for OFAC. They're not going to give you guidance anytime soon, probably never in a lot of instances. And so you're just going to have to figure out what these terms meet, need, mean and take your chances. You know, if you ask them and you wait a while and you have a good, strong argument that you're not doing anything sanctionable, you're probably not going to get sanctioned, um, but you still might. So you do have to take that risk and it can chill content and or con can chill speech to the extent there's free speech here. So they have something to talk about, but I just think they bit off more than they needed to on this. Yeah, I think the other the other issue is, and and again, all due respect to the folks who brought this lawsuit, like we're you know, tip our hat to anybody who's going to take a run at these issues. Like these are hard issues. They're challenging issues. Uh, you know, so no disrespect meant to any of these people. And we're, we're sorry, we're armchair, armchair quarterbacking this a little bit. But um, I would also say, you know, there's an APA claim in here. Um, you know, traditionally, we don't see those have any chance of success if, if we haven't sort of had time for the record to actually be kind of filled out a little bit. There's been no action uh, taken there's been no time for the agency to even respond to the guidance request. You know, these are the types of things where after a year or two or three of inaction in response to something, uh, maybe there's a, you know, a fighting chance in court on something like that. Uh, very difficult in, under these circumstances where it's so fresh. Uh, and, and with respect to IEPA and biting off more than IEPA can bear, they, they also took the tact of informational materials and the Berman Amendment and sort of went play that card again. Again, I think based on what we just talked about with TikTok and WeChat, where it's so core to what is happening and what the purpose of TikTok and WeChat are, personal communications, informational materials, this is just not that, right. in my it, view. It's well, just, that's just not, that's just, you could make that argument with just about anything, you know, speech-based, informational materials, personal communications, but I, I just, I just think at core, that's just not really what this is. And I think that a court would have a hard time sort of accepting that that's what this well, is. Well, one thing that might happen, I mean, it, it's too early for a response yet, but they might actually get their victory or their, their guidance out of a response because, um, you know, unlike in Exxon, these folks haven't been punished yet. And it's not clear to me that they're within the scope of the order to the extent that the order likely, I haven't gone back and looked at it, but it likely has a provision that either says that it doesn't apply to communications or it doesn't apply to, um, you know, it, it doesn't apply if it's exempt, if, it, if it's not, if the president isn't authorized to, to prohibit right. it. And so, so, you know, you could get the, you could get the, the Justice Department um, responding 
into this in a way that says, no, you guys, this is not what what is within the core of this we're we're just going after the ICC so you guys don't you know you're 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 coming in far before you should i mean yeah. sometimes the government does do that and say you know you're you're making a lot out of nothing we haven't gone after you and if that, that's all you're doing you're, you're probably not within the scope of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel for them because, you know, the attorney general himself has done some saber rattling and said, we're going to go after everybody who has anything to do with supporting the ICC. And so, you know, I get it. And given the, the current sort of way that the Justice Department is being run, I wouldn't be surprised if they're if they would be, be trying to criminally prosecute well, people who are doing stuff, doing things like this. So. Uh, I, I, I get all that. I, totally fair. One, I'll make one last comment. Then this is actually, I think, taking a little longer than we thought it would. But, um, you know, another approach on the guidance request could have been, and again, not to uh, Monday morning quarterback this too much, we have both seen and, and perhaps uh, submitted on behalf of clients guidance requests that basically say, we are intending to do X. Right. We, we don't believe that X is a problem under this sanctions program for the yeah. following reasons. Lay it all out. Boom, 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 boom. If you if you if you think differently, come come tell us and we'll stop. But otherwise, we're going to go do what we're telling you we're going to do. OFAC's on notice. And a lot of people take the view that, you know, if you notice up the agency in that manner, you're drastically reducing the idea that you're going to really be subject to any significant penalties. Now they could always disagree and come to you, but if they came to you and said, you need to stop and you did, then the chances you're going to be subject to enforcement, you know, it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee, but it's low. Uh, But um, you know, that's another way to go. And that could have been a way they could have gone here and said, we want to do all, we want to participate in these things at the end of the year. We don't think it's a problem for these reasons. And then it would still be sitting on someone's desk at OFAC, just like their current guidance request is. And, right. and they could have made the judgment at the time whether they go forward or not go forward, depending on sort of how they feel about how strong their argument is. But, you know, it, now they're in SDNY. We'll see what happens. You're right. They might get an answer, uh, either a backdoor answer through the briefing or maybe OFAC will even respond just to try right. to moot some of this to the extent they can so we'll see anyway one one um, more one more quick quick before we get to ransomware quick piece of free it is not advice it's just a tip um if i were the the if i were the plaintiffs i i don't think a response is due until after the election if if the government asks for an extension to that and the election comes out like the polling looks like it's coming out right now I would agree to that extension. I would try to get the government's answer as late as possible in this because this 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 matter might go away in 2021 um, without any further fight. Because um, I do think that there, if if the you know if, if if there is a Biden administration, I do think there's we're in for a lot of sanctions changes, and this program may not be long for this world if 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 there is a Biden administration. Yeah, yeah, we shall see. And also, I Tim, just to be clear, does not have a crystal ball, nor is he a paid political prognosticator. So no, no, <laughs> please don't no. don't don't add us as the uh, as the folks on Twitter say um, and complain about that. But yeah, all no, fair no, point. I, I'm all just, fair. All fair. All fair one points. possibility of two. Yeah. I'm just pointing that out. We, we warned you on the last episode that the election was going to be. Cre- 
creeping into the podcast in a bigger way over the next month than it certainly is. So I agree with, do agree generally with that sentiment and, and you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. So anyway, let's put the ICC lawsuit aside. Let's move to a, a cheerier topic, not really uh, ransomware. Uh, so as I said at the outset, uh, last week there was a, uh, an advisory that was put out by OFAC and also one that was put out by FinCEN which relate to, uh, in a nutshell, the regulatory risk associated with paying ransomware ransom payments. So again, we're assuming most of you out there know what ransomware is. For those who don't, it is malware, malicious software that is uh, gets into a usually a company or a school or a hospital or some entities. Uh, computer infrastructure, IT infrastructure, and basically locks down all the data and makes it inaccessible, encrypts it. And the only way, and then after that happens, the uh, victim company would get a message that says, if you want access to your data, you need to pay us a million dollars or more likely a million dollars in Bitcoin to this account somewhere, you know, not in the US that is going to be much harder to trace or something along those lines. Uh, And this has been a problem, a growing problem for several years. Uh, It was begin, it really was starting to crest when I was still at DOJ. And this was a very high priority for us in National Security Division and uh, at the FBI and uh, other agencies trying to combat this problem, educate people about this. Um, But it has gotten worse by all accounts during the pandemic, not surprisingly, because there are just a lot of people that are online constantly that are kind of sitting ducks here. Uh, And so I think the interesting, so, and I I would add that um, the OFAC advisory, so the FinCEN advisory, not surprisingly, is targeted mostly at financial institutions, those who are subject to the Bank Secrecy Act, and it's sort of reminding them that there are certain obligations that they have with respect to complying with all of those rules and also reminding them that uh, they need to be careful if they're going to be involved in any aspect of ransomware payments, you know, processing payments, uh, let's say, for uh, victims that they um, are not going to be, you know, there might be, they're likely going to be SAR requirements and there are other um, potential um, risks there in terms of uh, potentially engaging in, you know, essentially facilitating money laundering uh, or material support to terrorism or things of that sort. Now, these concepts I will say are, and these notions and these talking points are not new. And again, when I was a justice, I definitely wrote speeches that sort of highlighted these risks uh, for my boss uh, and others at DOJ to let people sort of have open open eyes and open minds about ransomware and whether they were if they were considering paying, be aware you could run into these traps of inadvertently facilitating terrorism, inadvertently violating sanctions, perhaps, by sending money to a sanctioned country or a sanctioned party. That is really kind of at, at core what's being sort of underscored here. I, I think I will just give one, um, two comments, I guess, before I throw it over to you. Number one, the, the message traditionally, I think, was aimed at victims themselves, at companies, or at, health, at hospitals, or at universities, or 
places, any place that has data that might be worth um, either stealing or trying to lock down and disrupt uh, operations. Um, and I think that was kind of the main focus. This is actually, um, I think quite consciously focused a little bit on sort of the cottage industry that seems to have grown up around ransomware payments, which is sort of interesting. And so it's, um, you know, digital forensic uh, service providers who are doing, you know, cyber remediation after a breach or after a ransomware attack. It's insurance companies, and in particular, those who provide cyber insurance. It's not just banks, but it's others in the sort of financial money processing chain, again, sort of payment processors and, and other um, in, uh, currency exchanges and things like that, um, that are also part of this process. So I think in some respects, it's sort of aimed at those folks and not only making them aware of this risk, but sort of sh sending a shot across the bow that, you know, you need to be careful. And in particular on the OFAC side, they are clear. They're like, look, we're just, we're warning you about sanctions risk. We're telling you that there are a bunch of malicious cyber actors who have engaged in ransomware attacks that we have sanctioned under, under cyber programs. Um, and moreover, those people, not surprisingly, tend to be associated with Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Three countries where you're going to have heightened sanctions risk if you're just going to be blindly sending money off or Bitcoin off uh, to these places to try to unlock your data, which by the way, there's no guarantee that it's even going to get unlocked after you make these payments. So I think at the end of the day, it's warning that, that cohort of people, not necessarily the victims, but sort of everybody around them who is involved in the ransomware payment industry, for lack of a better term. And then um, uh, it's also the idea that the government wants to take the opportunity to, to do what they always do, which is to say, if you get attacked, come to us, come to go to F call FBI call uh, Secret Service, call one of the agencies that handles cyber response within the federal government and let us help because this is incredibly complex stuff and trying to do it on your own, you may just compound a bad situation by making it worse by making one of these payments that gets you into even more trouble. So that's about all I got to have to say about that, but uh, I'll kick it over to you. Yeah. So this is not an area that I've actually given much thought to. So I, I read the advisor's advisories with interest. The one couple of things that jumped out at me, one is, um, the, I, I guess from a lay perspective, I would view the, the people who've been cyber attacked as, as victims. And this did, this, these publications did not really seem to, to view those folks as victims. It's, it was much more of a, so you've been, you, you've, you've been subjected to a cyber attack, you better not try and deal with the people who did this or you're going to get in trouble yourself. So it was yeah. almost trying to scare the pants off the victims to actually do anything. Now, the other thought that I had when I was kind of thinking through that is, you know, yes, people who are the, are victims um, often do want to call law enforcement and bring law enforcement in. in but on the other hand, uh, they're victims of a cyber attack where essentially they're probably being blackmailed with things that may be, might be unseemly, but also might be illegal. And so the victims of cyber attacks um, and, and the, the use of ransomware are often probably not going to go want to call law enforcement because they are worried that now I've been the victim of a cyber attack and the only way that I can can do anything about it is to go essentially turn myself in for a crime, and and so so that uh, it is it does seem a little more complicated than the advisory 
said, which was, you know, the answer to everything was to call the FBI. And sometimes people don't want to call the FBI and for understandable reasons. Yeah, this is a this is a fundamental tension that continues to persist in the world of cyber intrusions uh, and has from the very beginning, which is the government trying to incentivize victim companies to come forward and work with them so that they can analyze and understand and help, quote unquote, help the situation. And companies being companies or other entities just being scared to death that they're going to make the situation worse, not necessarily because they've done anything illegal, but uh, you know, if sensitive and proprietary data has been stolen or locked down, that's a that's a massive problem just from a business continuity perspective right. that they may not be able to deal with. Also, these attacks tend to expose flaws in cybersecurity readiness, and that subjects them to lots of potential bad consequences, in particular shareholder lawsuits and other types of you know privacy-based uh, attacks and lawsuits from uh, you know, whether it be customers or, or others that are going to expose them to just a, you know, new vistas of liability that they would not otherwise have. So it is very complicated. It is very, uh, it's a fraught area. And um, yeah, I agree that the tone of this is a little cold. Uh, and I think the tone, I think it's, it, I think that represents a bit of a shift over time where there was at least at first, when again, five plus years ago, when I was first looking at this, uh, the government was a little more sensitive and was trying to sort of be a little um, more open-minded perhaps, or at least expressing a little more openness to companies about how they wanted to deal with it. And maybe a lot, understanding that companies may wanna deal with these things in different ways. Um, going so far as to not even necessarily saying in guidance that it's a bad idea to pay ransomware ransoms, sort of leaving that sort of right. unaddressed, like it's sort of a personal choice you decide. Uh, for a while, at least that was the the position. I don't, I, I suspect that's changed over time. But in any event, um, yeah, this seems a little harsher. And it's now like everybody knows what the score is. Everybody should have gotten on board with you know, these types of, uh, you know, these issues and you should have a better plan. And if you find yourself in this position, uh, you're just gonna, you know, you run the risk of making matters worse, worse. And yeah, it's more, it's much more the scare tactic than the um, empathetic, like, you know, we understand tactic that maybe, we're, which is maybe closer to where we started on this issue. It is the, the vinegar approach as opposed to the honey approach. But, you know, I, I've represented companies that are, are victims, not, not of a ransomware attack, but that are victims of, of various economic crimes. And to the extent they're in industries that, uh, you know, heavily regulate uh, the access to data. So, you know, in the ITAR space or even in some of the high level dual use space in terms of information technology and the, the possible um, controls that you need to have on it. Those companies are gonna be very reluctant to walk in and talk about how they've been been hacked. And, and that's been my experience. Um, and, and, you know, and then the, the hacked and Generally, if it's a ransomware attack, it's a hack and they've found stuff that is pretty sensitive. And so it's exposed holes in your controls. And so you're almost walking in to the extent you've got, you know, um, uh, data control regulations because of what it is that you're storing. You're walking into the government and telling them, um, yeah, my controls were bad enough that this stuff got out of my company. Um, you're, you're essentially, you know, 
put in the position of, I'd like to do something about this, but if I do something about this, I'm going to get myself in trouble. And so, and this, this kind of doubles down on that was my view. Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, I, yeah, I agree on that. I mean, I think having been part of these discussions, it is, yeah, the calculus is very complex and there's no easy answers here. Um, just all ransomware attacks do not necessarily result in blackmail. Sometimes they just take the blanket approach where they lock everything down and say right. you can't have any of it, right? So they don't even necessarily need to know anything that's in the data. They just know that this is a business that's going to be crippled if the, if the data is locked down like most would be uh, and there's no redundancy or backup. So, um, but yeah, it is not an easy question. Uh, and, you know, we feel for, uh, again, the more increased the, the increase in targeting that we've seen over the last you know six plus months in the pandemic i think is what has now stirred uh some more action and the the feeling that this is something that needs to be put out in, into public I, I again this is one that will likely continue to evolve as as people have new thoughts and new approaches to dealing with this um you know also it strikes me that um you know the, you you have to have there has to be um although the OFAC regs are obviously strict liability uh, on this, um, you know, there's not, there is, uh, there's some discussion in the advisory about knowledge and what it means to have knowledge in this context, if you're making a payment that might violate sanctions. And I think that's an interesting question that if it ever got, if somebody ever got actually penalized for this and there was going to be a, you know, a bit of a fight about it or perhaps a lawsuit about it, then that might be interesting to sort of see how that would play out. And it would depend a lot on the facts, obviously, which could, you know, there could be layers upon layers of interesting wrinkles there that would uh, point you in one direction or the other. But I think that's that's just an interesting uh, question to think about as well. Yeah, I mean, that was just why my my instinct was that the tone could have been a little bit like you were the victim and don't make it worse by kind of right. inadvertently wandering into this minefield where yeah. the, it was like, you, you know, once this happens, don't do this and don't do yeah. that or you'll be in big trouble. And it's like, well, I don't know. But maybe the first approach was tried and it didn't work. Yeah. So. Well, f fear is the order of the day in case you've been asleep for the last uh, you know, several years. So, you know, I'm not surprised to see that. But in any event, um, let's put ransomware to rest for the time being and let's move on to our final uh, full topic here before we head for home. And that's the recent OFAC settlement dealing with one of our favorite topics, Cuba. Yeah, so this is so this is a, a settlement action again from October first. So that was a big day in in embargoed lore. Um, Generali Global Assistance is a New York travel assistance company. Um, it, it's kind of a back in the day settlement because it it really deals with uh, the time the time and place where a lot of I I think U.S. persons used to go to Cuba uh, through Canada or through Mexico or through some third country because um, back before the, the loosening in 2015, 2016, there weren't direct flights from the U.S. to Cuba. And so I think a lot of U U.S. persons thought that that was, you know, the legal way to get to Cuba when in fact it really was kind of fraught with potential OFAC violations. And, and I think a lot of U.S. travel businesses worked with Canadian travel businesses and Mexican travel businesses to arrange travel to Cuba. Um, and it was common enough that uh, a, a travel insurance company in New York worked with its Canadian travel insurance uh, and, and, uh, and, and healthcare travel insurance uh, affiliate to uh, 
provide healthcare insurance for U.S. travelers to Cuba. Um, and what would happen is that they would, uh, when the person would go to Cuba, the Canadian affiliate would provide the the insurance um, after being passed the case from the U.S. Uh, affiliate because the U.S. affiliate couldn't deal with the Cuba insurance because of the Cuba embargo, but their view was that they could pass it to their Canadian affiliate, who would then provide the insurance. Um, there would then there were reimbursement payments that were made on the insurance from the United States. So it was basically a systemic way of uh, uh, getting U.S. person business uh, involving Cuba to be done by a Canadian affiliate, uh, and. That is generally a bad idea. Um, I think people who understand this area know that that is really the example that OFAC gives for facilitation is essentially having a third party do something that a US person isn't allowed to do and knows that they aren't allowed to do. And it wasn't just one example of facilitation. There were apparently 2,500, actually close to 2,600 uh, examples of facilitation that, that, were, that took place over the course of years um, with this company. and and. The, the lesson here, I think, is they, so they, they, they found out about this. They turned themselves into OFAC. They, uh, they, there, was, there was a settlement. The settlement was around $6 million. I think the guidelines amount was $84 million because there were so many vi potential violations. Um, and, and OFAC found that they were egregious. And I think the, the main um, reason that OFAC found that they were egregious is that this wasn't just something that they just did as a practice, they actually wrote it into their manual that this was the way you're supposed to deal with Cuba. And, and so if I would have kind of one takeaway from this, it is that, um, well, we're not providing legal advice here. If you want to create a manual as to how to deal with Cuba, you should pay someone to provide you with legal advice and to actually do that. If don't create a manual on Cuba, if if you're not going to do that, because you are going to create a manual that contains um, policies like this one, which I think really compounded the problem because it was clearly a systemic problem that was ingrained into their compliance system, and and uh, you know that's that's as bad as it gets. Yeah, I think the the manual, the sort of codification of this referral process from U.S. to Canada, uh, in order to facilitate this business or or potentially try to evade what they knew to be the restrictions on them, uh, that's pretty bad. I mean, that's Exhibit A. That's why this was an egregious case. This was deemed to be an egregious case by OFAC. Um, I think it just underscores a point that we've seen time and again in particular with Cuba, which is this idea that if you are in the US uh, and you are a person subject to US jurisdiction, you cannot sort of by proxy do business with Cuba. <laughs> you just can't. And that's exactly what these this uh, this company was trying to do. And um, when it all got uh, sorted out in the end, um, you know, they OFAC came down on them, you know, relatively hard. As Tim said, I think the fact that they disclosed this, the fact that this is very old conduct from almost 10 years ago, starting I think is the oldest. And and then the, the rules got changed in the mid part of the last decade. And they even admitted in the um, in the notice that some of the conduct that was the uh, at issue here that was the basis for the apparent violations was later um, was later uh, permitted after the changes. And so I think all those things kind of mitigated, but, um, but that's kind of the big takeaway. I would also say just as a, 
general point and to follow up on the discussion we had the last time with this the changes to the Cuba regs relating to some of the general licenses that have gone away, the accommodations um, list that now exists and um, the import restrictions on against cigars and rum. Um, this is just another shot at travel, tourism and insurance, yep. which seem to be, uh, if, if, if you do a quick spin through recent enforcement actions from OFAC on Cuba, if, you're, if you take out the big financial institution cases that involve Cuba proce processing of Cuba-related payments, they're basically all in this area. It's, it's, one, it's some aspect of travel, tourism, and insurance. And so this is clearly a you know, strategic policy uh, you know, uh, imperative for OFAC at this point to go after this because it's seen as sort of one of the last main ways that the Cuban regime has still got a pipeline into U.S. dollars uh, and U.S. revenues. And um, you know, I don't. Again, we'll see what happens on a, on election day uh, if there's going to be if there's potentially going to be changes there. One one last point I'll throw in here before we go to the lightning round on that point. Um, I was having a discussion with somebody just a few days ago, and it came up the idea of whether the Cuba sanctions could actually go back to sort of Obama era Cuba sanctions, which were obviously on a, on a road to being lightened uh, significantly, if not completely lifted at some point, um, that Cuba apparently has made a big show. Uh, and, I, and I hadn't really focused on this, but I, I saw some of this, that they've made a big show about having some discussions with our, our friends in Beijing uh, as something of a patron, uh, perhaps akin to what um, you know, Russia was for many years with Cuba. So if that, if that continues, uh, or if there's, if there's any real substance to those discussions that we start seeing evidence of, um, all bets are off as to whether or not there's going to actually be any change with respect to our policy to Cuba. But uh, so I just throw that in as a bit of a wild card to kind of keep keep uh, tabs on. No, it's a great point. I mean, I, I, I definitely think that um, the stated policy of the Biden administration on Cuba has to has been to go back to the Obama era policy. But if Cuba were to strike a, an alliance with China, that would definitely throw a wrench into the to the mix. Yeah, I think all bets are off at that point. So uh, with that, that concludes the main portion of the episode for this week. And we will take a pause for our favorite sound effect. And now we are in the lightning round. Two topics for the lightning round today, Iran and uh, BIS, FedEx versus BIS. So Number one, Iran. As I said, we were planning to talk about this anyway, and then two hours ago, OFAC gave us a great gift, which is something even more to talk about here. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, it came out that uh, the US was thinking about expanding sanctions in Iran, which as we've talked about many times before, um, query whether any expansion of sanctions against Iran at this point make any real difference. Um, well, this is maybe one last area where perhaps there is some difference to be made because it's focused on the financial sector. And in particular, um, what, we, what was rumored to be in the works and what has now in fact happened is that um, a number of Iranian banks, uh, I think I counted 18, um, I looked at the list very quickly, 
uh, were added to the SDN list today and are now subject to secondary sanctions uh, where they were not previously. And that's because under Executive Order 13902, which was issued earlier this year and was used initially to target the sort of min minerals, precious metals, um, certain textiles uh, sectors in Iran has now been expanded to cover the financial sector. And these banks and these financial institutions are being sanctioned pursuant to that. Most, I believe, I haven't had a chance to check this yet because it's so fresh. I think most of these were previously sanctioned under Executive Order 13599, which yeah. meant that they were awful limits. They were U.S. persons were blocked from dealing with them generally, uh, with some exceptions that we'll talk about in a minute. But the rest of the world could do business with those banks and would not be subject to any secondary sanctions risk. Well, that's now done. And so now... Uh, secondary sanctions are in play with respect to these banks, and that is potentially very bad news for the last kind of linkages from Iran to the rest of the global um, financial system. The, the one additional thing that I'll throw out here before I toss it to you, Tim, so this is sort of this has purported to be for two reasons that this is happening. One is this is seen as a bit of a, this, these remaining banks were seen as a loophole that were still in play, you know, two years after the um, full reimposition of sanctions following the U S withdrawal from the JCPOA, this, this sort of set of banks was still potentially in play. And uh, you know, by, by the reports, it seems that there's a feeling that there was still illicit trade and other things perhaps that maybe were happening and being facilitated through these banks. And that's why this measure is being taken now. And the, the second thing is uh, Biden has indicated that if he is elected, he will make every effort to rejoin the JCPOA. And there's been some discussion that taking this step will sort of tie his hands a bit and make it all the more difficult. I think there's, I think, I think Tim and I have some, maybe don't agree with that hundred percent, but in any event, that's kind of the stated reason. The last point I'll make before I throw it to Tim very quickly is um, there's, there has been a lot of hand wringing and concern that this is going to really kill off any remaining sort of humanitarian aid uh, and trade that's happening with Iran, which of course is in dire straits following the COVID pandemic and the general wear and tear of sanctions over the last several years. Um, OFAC, it seems in the guidance that they've issued uh, and in the FAQs they've issued here, have taken great pains to make clear that that is not meant to be the case and that um, these banks certainly and that non-US persons and US persons alike can still do humanitarian trade with Iran. Um, as we know, in reality, the the answer there and, the, and how uh, people choose to deal with that additional restriction is much more complicated. Um, so, and then I'll, let me throw it to you on this, Tim. We, we were talking before offline about some of the interesting notes that we saw in some of the FAQs that were issued, in particular, a promise that um, non, there would be more guidance with respect to non-US persons and sort of what would not be considered significant transactions in this area. And, um, and that that might be issued in the, at the end of the 45 day wind down period that's uh, afforded by the general license that was issued with this. What do you make of that? Because as we were saying, I think that's that's definitely a bit of a departure from how OFAC typically handles handles these types of things and the sort of maximum chaos, confusion, and strategic ambiguity that they're looking to impart. And and so what do you what do you make of that? So 
I, I mean, I, it, it's a recognition, I think, that there's kind of some some real ambivalence about this move. I, I, I it's been talked about for a while, um, and is apparently being really pressed by hardliners on Iran as the the last hole to fill in terms of sanctions. But I, I think that you know that it is it, that on the other hand, you've got some of the more responsible people saying saying I think that you know, maybe we don't want to cut these banks off entirely. And in my view, this just by painting with such a with such a broad brush, it just strikes me as kind of a stupid move on the part of the administration if you're really seriously interested in sanctions compliance. Because the banks that were put onto the list now, by all accounts, were the banks that actually were trying in Iran. That's why they weren't, there were a bunch of banks that were on the secondary sanctions list. And those were the banks that were affiliated with the IRGC, that were involved in, in money laundering, that were involved in providing some payments for Syria. According to the administration, that's the stated ground for doing this. These 14 banks or 18 banks were the ones that got through because they 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 had at least they were they seemed to be doing better. And to the extent that the administration thought that there were particular banks that weren't, it could have put them on the, ri- the list for that reason. There wouldn't have been any controversy about it. But because they probably didn't think they had grounds to do that, they instead just put them all on the list. And in my view, it, it gives all of these banks now the incentive to just go rogue. I mean, what what is the point in having a compliance system and actually trying to um, you know, comply with international money laundering standards and international or any money laundering standards and, and, and comply with, um, you know, some make some effort to comply with uh, international sanction standards. If you're going to get put into the same broad group as the banks that clearly weren't doing that. And so it, I, I think that it trades away the leverage that we had on those banks because those banks had every incentive to stay on the right side of the line so that they would stay off the list. And this just says to them, basically, why bother? Because you're going to all be lumped together. So there's really no point in trying to do any of this. The thing that I, the, the, in terms of humanitarian trade, the guidance was interesting because it does seem to suggest that they are going to allow these banks to participate in, in, in humanitarian trade, will allow these banks to participate in some um, undescribed as of yet uh, insignificant transactions. But we don't know what those are, but they are going to give guidance, and I agree with you, Brian, that is more than they usually do when they put banks on the list, although they usually actually have a better reason to put banks on the list than they than they did here. But what I really wonder about, and this is so new that I haven't had time to really think hard about it, but I'll throw it back to you, is what's going to happen with SWIFT? I mean, if these banks go off of SWIFT, then essentially you have no real SWIFT trade in Iran and international wire system into Iran. And so you create these huge incentives to have banks that are outside the international financial system. And that to me strikes me as kind of crazy policy because we've spent the last 25 years just internationally in banking, trying to push all the banks into kind of one system because it becomes much easier to regulate them. And if you push all the Iranian banks out, you create this kind of black hole that is going to be much harder to police. And so I, 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 I get that the hardliners really want to crack down on Iran, but this strikes me as kind of a, a move that, if it really is run to fruition, is likely to backfire. Yeah, I mean, I think the unintended consequences here and in many of these moves are always fascinating to think about. I, I agree that if if you're 
I mean, we've talked about this in the in with respect to China to some degree. The way that the entity list is now being used in China, sort of very broad brush, throwing just you know large numbers of of companies on the list for um, you know reasons that would not have probably passed muster or, or been considered you know five years ago. Uh, and I think this is sort of same. It's it's let's just put paint with a broad brush, throw everybody on the list, and we're going to count on the fact that they the fact that they are radioactive now is going to be a net benefit for us and is going to cause enough net pain for the Iranian government, the Chinese government, fill in the blank to, uh, you know, I guess, help in the grand sort of, you know, math problem that we're waging here on a, pol on a foreign policy battle. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily true or, or even, really provable. I mean, time will tell. I would also say that, again, it strikes me that if any, if anything gets undone quickly with respect to Iran under a potential Biden administration, it could be something like this, where this, the, this group just gets put back on the, you know, on the, uh, on the 13599 list, uh, essentially, and U.S. persons are still off limits, but everybody else, uh, no secondary sanctions. So I, I, you know, I don't know, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I think this is very new again, literally this just came out two hours ago. So right. we've, we've taken a first quick spin through the FAQs and through, uh, the general license and, and thinking about this, I'm sure we'll come back to this at some point in the future, but, uh, yeah, for now we, we you know, we'll have to, we'll have to see. So, um, okay. That was not very lightning, but, uh, well, I, at least it's that a was a big topic it, and it, came, I acknowledge it became that. <laughs> bigger. I think we put it in lightning before we knew there was yeah. going to be a, there Fair was enough. be a, a we'll, big development. Today. We'll give our, we'll give ourselves a break on that one. Uh, so let, with that, let's move on to the last, uh, lightning round topic of the day, which is BIS versus or FedEx versus BIS and the outcome of that. So this is going to be another case where we're, we're going to do a little Monday morning quarterbacking, but let me just set the stage very quickly in, in a lightning fashion. So, so FedEx is obviously a, a common carrier, carries tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of packages a day around the world, a lot of packages a day. And some of them cross international borders. I'm sure many of them cross international borders. And so like many common carriers, FedEx, uh, you know, they take, they take shipments from their customers and they carry them. And, uh, you know, how that inter interacts with the export laws is, is sometimes not very well, because essentially if the the, the shipper has export duties, but if the shipper doesn't follow that, then FedEx is the one who's actually carrying these exports across international lines. And the way that the export laws read, it's clear that um, a carrier can potentially have export duties. And the the um, BIS has read the, the regulations that way. FedEx recently, and it's described in the opinion, um, got in trouble because it was delivering packages for its customers to uh, to end users that were on the entity list or was delivering packages that uh, were not allowed to be exported from the United States without a license. <clears throat> and so, and the, the theory of liability that BIS imposes against a common carrier like FedEx has traditionally been aiding and abetting. So they they find that they are aiding and abetting a, a, an unlawful export because the exporter itself is generally the shipper. 
FedEx brought a lawsuit that said that this, this application um, of, of the export administration regulations to FedEx um, violated the due process clause, vi violated the Administrative Procedure Act, um, and, and violated uh, ECRA. And, and the argument was that because there was strict liability uh, under these laws, um, that that uh, there was just no meaningful way that a company like FedEx could comply. And so neither the statute nor the constitution allowed BIS to impose this sort of strict liability like this. Um, now we get to the Monday morning quarterbacking and then I'll turn it over to you. So, so, the, so the, the, that was the theory of the lawsuit. The judge rejected the claims. Um, the judge went through and found that common carriers can be, that, that, that both the constitution and the, the statutes allowed common carriers to, to um, or allowed BIS to impose strict liability against common carriers for these sorts of export violations. And, um, and he found a little bit of difficulty with one of the statutes as to whether or not there, there was a, a mens rea requirement, but, but he found that you know, it was am ambiguous and, and BIS could impose such a requirement in those circumstances. Okay. So I, I found that ruling relatively unexceptionable. I thought that the last issue probably could have gone either way, but 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 still, I, I thought that it, 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 there is strict liability, um, or there there is pretty established law for civil strict liability um, across both the D.C. Circuit and across in the Supreme Court cases for certain types of regulatory crimes. Um, it is regulatory offenses, and it's civil liability. It's not criminal liability, and so strict liability doesn't seem to be per se out of bounds. The argument that I didn't see, there was a working assumption that aiding and abetting liability was strict liability. Um, I know you and I have represented common carriers before, and I, I, I have argued in front of BIS, and BIS has never responded to it, and we, we've always essentially won the, the, the case, so we've never really challenged it, that aiding and abetting liability is not strict liability, that, that the term aiding and abetting has a, has, a, has, it has a common law meaning that includes a mens rea requirement. And so, so there, there's no, you can't interpret it as strict liability. And BIS has never taken a formal position on this. Now, this, loss, this lawsuit was conducted under the presumption that BIS, that, that BIS was interpreting as strict liability, but I, I, I didn't see it there and I haven't gone back all the way through. Maybe somebody argued it somewhere, but I, I really would have wanted to push harder on the argument that, it, well, if aiding, liability, aiding and abetting liability was possible in this area, but it, in, it, it included a mens rea requirement and it had to include a mens rea requirement because that's what the term aiding and abetting means. And I, and, and I didn't see that argument pushed at all. And I thought that was a better argument than the ones that were raised in the police. So, here, so here's my, I have sort of two big points on this that are, um, that sort of relate to that uh, comment. One is, um, you know, just for context, for those who didn't follow this when it first got filed, this was filed in the wake of Huawei being added to the entity list last year. It got filed, the lawsuit was filed in June of 2019, a month after Huawei was added to the entity list. And I think there was a feeling at the time uh, by FedEx and others that the requirements to comply, in particular with respect to Huawei, would be so onerous that they would just have to, their business would grind to a halt and they wouldn't be able to operate any longer. So that that's kind of 
as a, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but that's my understanding of sort of what animated this in the first instance, right? So that's number one. Number two, related to what Tim just said, and this discussion, this, this sort of very interesting discussion about mens rea and knowledge, et cetera, that, that we saw in the opinion, uh, a very thoughtful, well-written opinion by a very wise judge um, who- um, Very wise was, judge. Was, um, you know, there was no, there was no injury here. That we're not in a situation like, right. again, the ExxonMobil case where they have a penalty imposed against them. Here, they don't. This is all prospective. It's all speculative. It's all looking at, well, we can't comply with this entire regulatory regime. As right. a general matter, again, not to, not to sort of uh, second guess too much here, those are, those are not the type of challenges that fare very well in this area. If you have a, con if you have a concrete, particularized, specific, fact-based harm that you can point to and say, here's why, in my case, this, doesn't, this is unfair, unjust, unconstitutional, uh, you know, illegal, et cetera, your, your chances of success are far greater than these sort of very broad, you know, sort of diffuse challenges to this entire, essentially they were just taking on the whole EAR and saying the, the way it's all set up is, is hooey and it needs to go. And uh, I mean, again, I, that's, a, that's a drastic oversimplification, but that's, that's sort of where we were here is that the, there was just no real case or controversy or concrete injury. So I, I understand that's why you seek declaratory relief in the first instance to get it, to avoid that. But at the same time, you know, when I thought about that more, I'm just like that. That's the kind of case that you're going to need to have to to flesh out this let, point that Tim raised about. Let's put out this, and, and let's make it let's make it real with with your example, Brian. So so after Huawei goes on the entity list, I mean, carriers are carrying tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of packages a day to Huawei entities around the world, and people are probably still trying to ship them even after Huawei goes on the entity list, at least a number of them. And the carrier puts into their screening system Huawei. And let's say they catch 48,000 out of the 50,000 packages or 49,000 out of the 50,000 packages and a thousand get through because, you know, screening that sort of volume is really hard because you've got to do it so fast and you've got to, you know, the screening software has to be tuned correctly, but if it's tuned too high, then there's too many hits and you got to have enough people to go through all the hits and figure out what's a real hit and what's not a real hit. And so they're going to be mistakes that are going to be made when you're dealing with that kind of volume. If if BIS imposes a penalty for aiding and abetting liability in those circumstances, especially if they impose any sort of big penalty against FedEx for, for missing things in screening, when it had, if FedEx could show it had a great screening program in place, it was doing its best and it missed a few things and they imposed some big penalty on that. I, I think if you come in with the, the argument that that sort of liability isn't permitted by ECRA, which was their argument there, or with the argument that to impose aiding and abetting liability, there has to be some sort of mens rea, meaning that if you showed that they had no compliance program, or if you showed that they were their compliance program was kind of willfully missing all of these things, or that they had no, you know notice of this and hadn't done anything to fix it, fine. Like, there, there is some room for that, but but if the if the facts are that they're trying their best and that the volume just got so great because a new company went on the entity list that had a huge volume of deliveries and they stopped most of them, but a few got through, like that that I think the regulators, you know, if you got them off the record and 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 on truth serum, would tell you those that's not what they're going after. That is not something that really is 
the sub the proper subject of the export laws. And if they they somebody got it in their head that they were going to go after that anyway, I think that's the sort of case that you would want for a challenge and not one where it's basically every you can't apply these laws to us because it's just too hard is just not the posture that you want to be in. Right. I would yeah, I agree, agree completely. And I would just add sort of one final point there, which is um, I'm I'm paraphrasing, I'm gonna be paraphrasing here, but there was there was a portion of the briefing uh, that talked about the idea that in other statutory regimes, there are exceptions for common carriers that protect them from liability in these types of scenarios. And and essentially the the briefing kind of made the case that it's unreasonable not to have such protection for common carriers right. uh, in this context. Um, and I, somebody, I believe it must have been the government's brief said something like, this lawsuit is essentially a policy preference in search of a legal claim. And I think there's something to that. And the idea that in the Export Control Reform Act of 2018, when perhaps this issue wasn't quite as front and center as it is now, because we didn't have Huawei on the entity list and we didn't have the sort of enforcement posture and uh, just the pace of you know additions to the entity list and the SDN list that we do now, um, you know, maybe it would have made sense to consider that. Maybe it was considered. I, I would have to go back and look at that. But but in any event, there is no such exception for common carriers under right. ECRA. And, you know, if, if, this is, if this is the end of this litigation for now, at least in this form, then, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see that there could be a run taken at this issue in the, whatever the next version of, uh, you know, export control sort of tinkering or reform is at some point in the, in the coming years. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to the extent there's an exception in this area, it strikes me that it would like, you'd likely want it to be a good faith exception. Basically, you do want the carriers to be part of this because they they do have the resources to do it. It's just that they're not going to be, no matter how hard they try, given the volume, there's going to be stuff that goes through. And so what, what I think you want is to give them the incentive to do their best so that they become one check. You know, the shipper is another check and they're and usually the, the bank is a third check so that you have multiple checks in the system so that you, that, that, you know, at some point, these sorts of shipments get stopped before they they go to the wrong party. But but having you know strict liability for carriers in these circumstances strikes me as as insane. And and it, I'm not even convinced that that when you know under the the aiding and abetting theory that BIS has that, that, that it really is, is that yeah. it really is strict liability. Yeah. Well, that'll be for another day when. Tim and I are on the briefs for some other common carrier exactly. trying to make that argument in front of uh, the, the district court in DC. So uh, with that, that was a decidedly non-lightning lightning round, but those, those two issues, <laughs> those two issues were pretty, uh, pretty complicated and uh, we wanted to sort of wade through them a little bit. So apologies for um, those who, uh, love brevity if you love brevity you probably don't like this podcast right yeah. anyway, you, so. you have ditched us long yeah. ago so fair fair so uh but in any event that's all that's all we have for this episode uh thank you as always for joining us um we are just looking at the calendar here we are a little more than uh we are basically just three plus weeks away from the election i think we're going to be doing we will do one more that we record that will get posted. This will be up uh, probably October 13th. And then we'll probably do one more episode 
that'll go up just the week before the election. And then we will probably be recording toward the end of the week of the election. Uh, and it may very well be that that's all we focus on is sort of what do we what do we think this means if if we even know what it means at that point which we may not so um can't trust in the, any event thank the you election for, well i'm i'm yeah that's not that is not the point that i'm trying to make <laughs> uh but we, we will we will try have faith in our in our election um but uh thank you as always for joining again if you're a fan of the pod please subscribe give us a five-star rating you can find us anywhere Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube. Uh, and uh, until next time, stay well. And of course, stay sanctions free. Stay sanctions free, everybody. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.